This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Hey, y'all from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. If you are hearing my voice right now, you survived Thanksgiving. I am proud of you. Give yourself a round of applause, a pat on the back. You made it through a lot. Relatives talking politics at the table, long lines at the grocery store, oven mishaps, your Aunt Ruth's potato salad. You made it. And now you deserve a break. A little slice of feel good, a few laughs. Listener, that's what we are giving you this episode. We're going to highlight some interviews I've done with comedians over the last year or so. First up, a couple of stories from comedians on their way up, struggling just to make it. Long before he was the star of The Oath and shows like Eastbound and Down and The Mindy Project, Ike Barinholtz was a college dropout. He left Boston University, moved back home to Chicago. He was doing improv at night, and he had a day job to make ends meet. I, I, I loved school. Sure you but did. But I hated studying. And so I That's loved, not how it works. I know, I, I know. But I loved, ta- I loved my teachers. Yeah. I loved talking to my teachers. All right. I loved Boston. But BU just wasn't for me. And I think I went through and and there was a bit of a uh, you're fired, I quit situation mm-hmm. with the school. And mm-hmm. then I, I went back home to Chicago. And my parents were pretty, you know, freaked out because yeah. they, you know, obviously wanted, wanted the best for me. And, and they knew I liked acting a little bit. So my dad took me to the Improv Olympics 25th, or no, I'm sorry, it was the 15th anniversary okay. show at the Vic Theater. And I'd never seen real improv before. Mm-hmm. And I went and I was just blown away. Mm-hmm. That was an epiphanal moment where I yeah, was yeah, like, yeah. okay, I'm feeling something. I remember seeing Amy Poehler oh, and wow. Adam McKay. And the person really who was so funny, he came out and did this scene and it was Tim Meadows. Oh, yeah. And he came out and was and did the scene. and The he, ladies' man. The ladies' man. <laughs> and he was so funny in the scene. And uh-huh. it, to be honest, the scene didn't even get a, a lot of laughs, but it was so... He was using the very specific references that yeah, I yeah. use, and he was getting some laughs off of it, and I thought, oh, my, I, 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 I could do this. I could see okay. myself doing this. So it was, I think, the next week I signed up for classes at, huh. at I.O. and Second City and the Annoyance Theater, which is this great kind You're of... You at three. I signed up at all three. Wow. Yeah, I, I ch- completely jumped in. I had a day job, but I, I every night- What I was would, the day job? I was working for the Chicago Transit Authority. I read that. Yeah, I, I was working you, for the marketing department. You drove Valerie Jarrett around? <laughs> I did drive Valerie. I did. Valerie Jarrett, who was a senior advisor to Barack Obama when he was in the White House. But before that, when she was in Chicago with CTA, she was the- She was the chairwoman of the CTA. Oh, yeah, okay. she was the chairwoman. And every once in a while, when she would kind of come in, I would- Go and pick her up, and uh, I don't know why we didn't take the train. But, <laughs> yeah, but you know, but uh, was she but, cool? Yeah. yeah, she was. She was. You know, I was like a eighteen-year-old <laughs> idiot listening to Howard Stern on my transistor radio. I didn't know. You know, um, yeah. it was so funny too because at the same time, there's this uh, gym, kind of nice gym, right around the corner from the CTA. CTA is in the Merchandise Mart, and behind there's this really beautiful gym mm-hmm. called the East Bank Club, mm-hmm. and they have two full basketball courts. I okay. love basketball. Yeah. And I would go on my lunch break or I'd go after work and me and all my friends would play. Mm-hmm. And Stop. Yeah. Barack Obama. Yeah. I hear he's not actually that good at basketball. No, he's not bad. He's uh, no, well, no. you have to say he's, that. Because <laughs> he's a dear friend. Uh, no, no. He, he, um, 
he wasn't bad. He 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 wasn't like a, you know a stud on the court, but we just saw him all the time. And and yeah. I think one time I asked him, I'm, I was like, "Are you a politician?" And he's like, "I'm a local rep." I'm working. And I I got bored. You know, I was like, oh, but I'll, I'll see you never. He did yell at my partner one time. Though, Why? Because he my he went up. And my partner kind of hacked him. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna curse. So get do it. Beat, but he he comes down and points his finger at my friend's this is Obama. face. This is Bar- President Barack yeah. Obama. And he goes, "Don't undercut me, kid. Don't do that again." And I was like. <laughs> And now, like, I, I just then, like, cut to 2002. My dad's like, hey, I think he's going to be our senator. He's great. We love him. And then he, I watched him do that 2004 speech. Oh it's this God. defining moment in American politics. This man is speaking from the heart and, and, and creating a movement. And all I can think of is, don't undercut me, kid. <laughs> but anyway, so I was, I was, dad was doing that during the day. And, and, and then at night, I would take classes and on the weekend took I, I, I was a bus boy at Second City and I would you know uh, wipe up the vomit from the kids that puke because they drank too much oh, and I, then I would watch Tina Fey and yeah. I would watch Rachel Dratch and uh, Brian Stack all these great performers and I really you know uh, I just I just kind of immersed myself in the Chicago improv community yeah. which is really my that's my acting school that's my training that's yeah. where I come from yeah our time is coming to a close, but I promise the next time you're on the show, you're yes. going to tell me all about the crazy adventures you, Seth Meyers, Jordan Pill, Jason Zakis got into when you did sketch comedy in Amsterdam. Amsterdam, Holland. Make that a movie. We're trying to. It's right now. Really? It's, it's a hard NC-17. No, <laughs> I, I eventually it, it could be like a fun movie, um, but it was. That was a theater called Boom Chicago, and it's, why were they in Amsterdam? Well, it's it was three guys who were. Northwestern students and they were backpacking through Holland and they were like we love it here but the comedy's terrible let's do a second city style show here so they called it you know Chicago for Chicago and uh-huh. boom no one knows why it's such a weird name but and it started off just the three of these guys in the back of a bar and huh. by the time I got there you know in, in 99 it was big it was a dinner theater through two 300 seats and then and, and the prime minister would come and, and it was crazy it was do crazy. they laugh at jokes as much as we do up there uh they they, they don't laugh as hard as we do okay. um they're very honest all right you know uh after the show they would make us go and talk to the audience go and schmooze literally in your contract you'd schmooze yeah. and those dutch man you know americans you'll be like i loved it and yeah like, oh, what was your favorite part the whole thing was great yeah and the Dutch are just like, um, the show was not bad. Um, your black friend was very funny. Uh, you you had the song that did not uh, was not good, but uh, will, will I come back? Possibly. So it was like that. You're like, thank you. That was Ike Barinholtz. We talked just a few weeks ago as his movie The Oath was coming out. Ike wrote and directed that film, and he starred in it as well, alongside Tiffany Haddish. You can check out the entire episode in our podcast feed to hear more about what Tiffany is like on set. All right, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. All this episode, we are sharing a few of my favorite moments with comedians slash comedic actors here on the show. Another incredible story of struggling on the way up, also in Chicago as it happens, came to us from Timothy Simons. You know Timothy as Jonah Ryan on the hit HBO comedy Veep. But long before that show, Timothy was a struggling actor living in Chicago where he worked a lot of odd jobs. I worked backstage at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater, and that sort of got me into this world where I was a stage carpenter for a long time. I would, like, audition for plays at night and try to, like, be in rehearsal at night, and I would build sets during the day. And um, 
And then when I started focusing more on on-camera stuff, I needed to have my days free. So I started working at bars and I was a bouncer at Joe's on Weed in Chicago, which on the Colbert show, I did in fact say it is the worst bar in America. <laughs> and I, st- I want to let everybody, I want to let your listeners know that I stand by that statement. Okay. There, it turned out their Chicago Trib wrote an article a couple days after or the day after. And the last paragraph was, we reached out to Joe's on Weed for comment, and we have not heard back. (laughs) And I just love that I was able to troll them so many years later. It's the worst job I've ever had. Really? Because everybody, I don't know if you've seen me, like at the time, I was probably 6'5", 180. (laughs) And I'm not kidding. I was the biggest dude on that staff. (laughs) Why? Everybody else. Who was the manager of security? Joe's on weed. Uh, they didn't. Uh, they didn't have one. Okay. Their ju- their thought process was: we're not going to get them with size because it's such a big bar. Yeah. It was like we're not going to get them with size. We're going to pay twenty five people six dollars an hour. So if something <laughs> did happen, we would literally just overwhelm whatever it was with bodies. You know what? Okay, it's like: would you rather fight? A horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses. horses. (laughs) We were a hundred duck-sized horses going after these dudes at like this weird Midwestern country bar that also had hip-hop shows. Uh, Hip-hop shows, okay. One of my first nights working was a Ghostface Killer show, and just him or Al Wu-Tang? No, just him, just Ghostface. Okay, and he had opening acts. Okay, Um, it, it was all going fine. It, it was running really late. Like, uh, mm-hmm. Ghostface, like, I mean, he was supposed to go on, I, I think, at, like, 10.30 or 11, mm-hmm. and nobody had even heard from him. Like, he was not only not going on, mm-hmm. he wasn't anywhere to be found. And so, like, the whole night had started late. They rolled out the opening acts a little bit late, and people were people were not super happy about how long it was going. Yeah. And so I still, I told this story on Colbert and there was something that, and the reason I bring that up is because something happened afterwards, which was really fun. Mm. So, um, after Colbert, not after the riot. Gotcha. So basically. <laughs> A phrase um, I've never said myself, after the riot. I love that. <laughs> not after the riot, after Colbert. <laughs> so. <laughs> um, you haven't told me why they riot. opening act comes yes. on. Okay. A New York City, New York City hip hop duo. And one of them. I think maybe the crowd wasn't super into his songs. Uh-huh. And so he got upset. And I think his exact words were, F- Chicago hip hop. I'm all about New York City. From what mm-hmm. I remember. Fighting words. And we were serving glass bottles that night. First and mistake. First mistake. And immediately they started raining down on stage. Oh my God. And one of the guys in the band, I don't think the guy, somebody, uh, a bartender told me this later, somebody reached behind the bar and grabbed a tequila bottle, like a full <sighs> Cuervo tequila bottle Ugh. and hucked it at the stage. And it hit the other guy oh, in the face. The no. other guy in the duo in the face. He runs oh, off stage. Lord. The whole place lights up. Oh my God. Somebody... Um, I find this out. I was re- reminded of this later that somebody took a couch and threw it from the balcony <laughs> on the first floor. And here you were thinking Boston was bad. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, at some point, 14 cops showed up. I was wearing a shirt that said Joe's on Weed on it. And I asked my, name. my manager, like, what I should do. And he said he didn't know. And so I just, or stop it. Like, somehow he was like, I don't know, just stop it. And so... I just took the shirt off and I turned it inside out and just pretended like I was at the show and I joined in with the riot. 
Because I was not like the, the duck-sized horses could not overwhelm this. What kind of rioter were you? Were you a glass thrower? Were you a sofa thrower? Were you a puncher? Oh, sh- that reminds me. I did get punched in the face. <laughs> I did get punched in the face before, and I think that was the final straw where I was like, f*** this. I'm getting paid $6 an hour. I'm not getting punched in the face for that. And and so I think what I was, I was more of like a, I was more of like a yeller and a fist in the air kind of rioter. Me like, too. Like, I'm just trying to like egg, I wasn't going to destroy something at my place of business. Yeah, you're just the instigator. my place of work. I wasn't going to instigate it. Yeah, I was. I was just like, "Yeah, you should throw that couch." Yeah, like that sort of thing. <laughs> and so I tell this story on Colbert, and I come backstage, and the the musical act that night was, I believe, the Dan Auerbach band, like okay. side project from Black Keys. Yeah, yeah. I say that was with a question mark because I don't <laughs> like you don't follow know. music. <laughs> I'm like, the Black Keys. The Black Keys. Fine. The Black Keys. And he goes, "Hey, man, uh, I was running the soundboard." at Joe's on weed that night. And we spent 15 minutes going like, this was one of the things that like, I like in the story, I'd said like, Oh yeah, the couch had gone from the first floor or from the second, the balcony down to the second floor. And he was like, you're not wrong, but you're not right. It got thrown off the balcony, but it like got wedged in between like the bow truss of this building and the balcony. So it was kind of just stuck halfway between the balcony in the first I mean, floor. That's a better option than like it hitting someone. So I'll take that. Yeah, no, 100%. <laughs> and we should close the story by saying, you know, like neither of us condone violence. Of course. In any way. <laughs> of course. It's not, violence is never funny 15 years later. <laughs> <laughs> Timothy Simons, he plays Jonah Ryan on the HBO comedy Veep. That show is coming back for a seventh and final season next spring. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. All this episode, we are sharing a few of my favorite moments with comedians here on the show. All right, time for a break. When we come back, not one, not two, but three alums of Saturday Night Live with three very different takes on the show. And one of them spills some tea about that time Donald Trump hosted. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas has re-engineered socks for ultimate comfort by getting rid of that annoying toe seam, adding arch support, and using some of the world's softest cotton. And for every pair purchased, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. To date, they've sold and donated over 10 million pairs. To feel the Bombas difference, go to bombas.com slash minute for 20% off your first order. Support also comes from Buffy, the comforter made better for you and the earth. Buffy uses natural eucalyptus to create a soothing, silk-soft fabric and rejuvenates recycled bottles into a cloud-like fill, all to create a comforter with 4.8 stars across 13,000 reviews without cruelty or waste. Visit Buffy.co to experience the complimentary 30-night trial and use code NPR to save $20 on your purchase. How often do people lie on dating apps? And are robots taking over our jobs? I'm Cardiff Garcia, co-host of Planet Money's The Indicator, where every day we tell you a short story about the economy. Get it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. Today we are sharing a few of my favorite moments with comedians here on the show. And when you talk to comics, the one thing that always comes up over and over again is one show, Saturday Night Live. 
We're going to hear two former SNL cast members in just a bit, uh, Taryn Killam and Sashir Zameda. But first, we're going to hear from SNL alum Natasha Rothwell. She used to write on the show. Uh, she is now a writer, actor, and producer on HBO's Insecure. But a few years back, she got the call to audition to be on SNL. What she did not know was that this was not going to be any normal audition. It was actually a secret audition for only black women. This was the result of ongoing and very loud criticism of the show's record on diversity. Uh, Here's Natasha talking about that strange audition and what she learned from her time on SNL. Well, here's the thing. (laughs) For me, doing comedy in New York, for most people who do comedy in New York, yeah. I'll speak generally, yeah. they have sort of their crosshairs set on being on SNL. That is the holy That's grail. That's the holy grail. That was not my case because of said yeah. issues with their casting. Yeah. I had not seen myself reflected in mm-hmm. the cast yeah. or someone who looked like me exactly. on the cast. I'll rephrase that. And so... Because I'm like, in thinking of black women, Maya Rudolph, yes. another black woman from way back in the day. Yes. But it was like, yeah. Yeah. And so for me, I was just like, you know, I don't want to feel like running my head against a wall that I knew that was sort of impenetrable. And so while I was on that grind, yeah. um, I was contacted by the artistic director at the time uh, at the People's Improv Theater and said, listen, mm-hmm. uh, SNL reached out to me. They're doing this audition. Uh, and they asked me who I think should be a part of it. And I said, you. And I was like, okay. Did it feel weird? Yes. It was like, this is the Underground Railroad audition. What yeah. I, well, I didn't, to be honest, like me being completely wide-eyed and naive, I showed up and I thought it was just going to be a multicultural, like, oh. I didn't know it was just like black women. Until I'm <laughs> backstage. I was backstage. I was like, what kind of utopia is this? <laughs> I was like, this is heaven. <laughs> I remember we took a picture, which like got leaked somehow. Yeah. And I was just like, this, I've never, all of us talked about how we're always the only one. Yeah. You know, like yeah. if we're on our Herald teams or if we're showing up for different things up uh-huh. until that point, there'd be a black person. Yeah. Maybe a black woman. Mm-hmm. Not a room full of talented, funny black women. Yeah. But then they bring you together. And, and like, they bring us Kiki together. Kiki to Kiki, but yeah. now you got to compete. Yeah, like to the death. In right? the comedy <laughs> Hunger Games. In the comedy Hunger Games. But I, when I, here's the thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I want, I like a thousand percent, like was... At the point when someone's just like, here's a party that you definitely weren't going to be invited to, but now you have a special invitation. You dress up. Like, you get dressed, you, like, get ready. So I was like, okay, I'm going to really try to go after this. But I remember seeing everyone backstage, and I hit a point emotionally where I was just like, I don't think I'm what they're looking for. And not for Mm -hmm. my ability, but... Mm -hmm. They classically cast people who look like the imitations, like the the impersonations that they'll Uh. do. And at the time, they were looking for a Michelle Obama. And I was like, that ain't me. (laughs) But you know what I am? I'm funny. And so I was like, I'm going to write and perform something that I think is very funny and that makes me laugh. What did you perform? Um, I did uh, impressions of Oprah, Maya Angelou. I did Keenan. Keenan was in the audience. And so I did a Keenan. You did Keenan. I did Keenan for Keenan. a little bit of Keenan. It was completely silent, which is me doing all of his looks, (laughs) which are just like, because he does a lot of wide eyes to the camera. Oh, yeah. So I just announced it. You know, I'm doing Keenan. And it was just... I love it. It was just a lot of like <laughs> side looks. And I, um, and I had such, I felt in that moment like a fearlessness with the audition because I was like, I've got nothing to lose. Mm. And I had a great audition. I felt really good about it. Mm. Um, 
and that's what I want to have happen. And like yeah. everything else that happened after that was all a shock and all campaign. Like because no then idea. they came to you and said you should write for us. Yeah, um, they reached out to my manager at the time, and they well, not she's still my manager. I love her to death. Edna, mm-hmm. what's up? Um, she <laughs> she said that they contacted her and were just like it was one of the best written auditions we'd seen, and would wow. you come in for a meeting to write for the show? And it was another. I remember um, getting the the call for that, and it was. A, a long time oh, it really? was a it was a time enough for me to sort of grieve not getting in mm. then that popped up again so it was just a very it was a back and forth of just like the hot you know the hot guy yeah. wants you he don't want you uh-huh. he called you know yeah. it's just like yeah you know i don't want to mess like, with him i already blocked his number i blocked his number who's this <laughs> and then you're just like okay let me you know put on some makeup and see what he want so <laughs> yeah it was definitely that going into uh meet with the head writers and you know ultimately right for the show. I have interviewed now your my third interview with someone who used to be on that show, Mm -hmm. Dr. Taryn Killam. Yeah. Sashir, who was just delightful. I got the feeling from both of them Mm -hmm. that their relationship with that show, even after being off it for a while, is conflicted. Was it a good experience for you? I hear I I wonder about what it's like to be there from what I've talked to folks about. It's not easy. It's mm. not easy. I'm appreciative of the time I like had there. Yeah. How many years were you there? I was just there for one year. Okay. It was season 40, which mm-hmm. was a wild time to be there. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's meant to be easy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also think that um, being in a 40-year-old institution that is predominantly white as yeah. a woman of color, oh, yeah. it's a different journey. And I'm not trying to sugarcoat it or whatever. Yeah. It's just it's sort of at this point, my process with having been on the show and now sort of having hindsight, it's really sort of matter of fact where um, I learned a ton. I learned a ton. Mm-hmm. I was like working alongside amazing, smart, funny people. Mm-hmm. In an environment that wasn't for me. Like, some people thrive there. Yeah. You know? So, it's like, no shade, but it was just like, it, was, yeah. it wasn't for me. But at the time, I wanted, it's it's like you want the glass shoe to fit so badly. Mm-hmm. And you're bending your foot and mm-hmm. you're trying to figure out how to fit in because you want it to be you. You want yeah. them to want you as much as you want them. But you should never break your foot. It shouldn't break your foot. Find something that fits. <laughs> so find a nice, you know, easy shoe. <laughs> yeah. Something where it's just, you know, there's a comfort level there. And so... Some Naturalizer lip Yeah, that's right. Get some, like, you know, little low wedges. Nothing (laughs) crazy. That was Natasha Rothwell talking about how she got a job as a writer on SNL. She left the show a bit after a year. Now she plays Kelly on HBO's Insecure, where she is also a writer and producer. So you heard Natasha and I talk about that secret black woman audition at SNL. Another woman that was at that audition, and she was cast in the show after that night. Her name is Sashir Zameda. She spent several seasons on the show before leaving in 2017. And she told me that she still confronts the issue of race all the time, on stage and off. Particularly right now in this age of Donald Trump. I think because it's like in our face more... Something is in the air where it's like people who have maybe negative thoughts about race or class or gender or Love sexuality. Maybe. Like, maybe they may be a little bit more racist. <laughs> maybe a little racist. <laughs> They're coming out. They are. They're they coming are ready. out of void work and they feel comfortable to say whatever they want because other people in positions of power are doing that as well. So 
yeah, I mean, I talk about it on stage. I talk about it with my friends. I think the more that we are open to talking about these things and the more aware people are, the more we'll be able to, like, combat it when we see it. Yeah. Well, give me an example of, like, one of those convos now. Well, actually, the other day I was – because on on stage I'll talk about when people say, um, I don't see color. Yeah. (laughs) And, like, to me that feels so old. Like, it feels like most people are over that statement. Yeah. But I, like, still have to explain to people why that's bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was like, it's like slapping and say, don't touch my hair. Yeah. Like, we're still doing that. Yeah. It's just saying how, like, I hate when people say, I don't see color. Because it's a lie, first yeah. of all. There's <laughs> you that. You can see a color. <laughs> There's that. Even if you're colorblind, you can see shades. Uh-huh. And secondly, it's just trying to say, like, I choose not to see injustice or I'd rather not be bothered with the information that some people are treated differently because of the way they look. And that's not helpful to anybody. It should be helpful if we saw color and recognize how different people are being treated differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing how many times, because I, I because I've talked about this on stage, like, I do other interviews where they're like, but can't you just ignore it? Or like, well, what if you just didn't think about it? And I'm like, I can not think about yeah. it, but also, why would I do that? Why would I ignore it? Exactly. Exactly. I then, could pretend that like STDs aren't a thing. Yeah, but then like, but then I'm at risk. You know, like, <laughs> exactly. why would I put myself in danger <laughs> just because I want to choose that? The clap is not real. Yeah, and I choose not to believe it. Mind so. over matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so you talk about your mother in the special. Yeah, and I love the, you. From what you said of her, she seems amazing. She is. Uh, how is she dealing with conversations about race in this new time mm. and space that we're in? Have you guys talked about race? We talked about race a bunch, yeah. yeah. We actually did a thing for NPR for This American Life where I oh, interviewed nice. her about oh, nice. her experience growing up in Arkansas okay. during the civil rights movement. Yeah. She was one of the first black students to integrate a white junior high in her in her town. And, Sounds tough. Mm-hmm, just a little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so her view on race has always been like, a little distrustful mm. of white people, mm. and, like, rightly so. You know, now she's, like, more open. Yeah. Um, but she always kind of has, like, a... A remove. A removed attitude when yeah. it comes to... My parents, too. like all people kind of thing. My dad, he refused to give my brother or I the sex talk. My mother had to do it. It was very awkward. But he was always eager to give us talks about race. Mm-hmm. And the one convo we had that I'll never forget, it was so weird. It was out of the blue. And, and my mom and my dad had white friends. I had white friends growing up. Um, but he was like, you can be friends with them, the white people. You can be friends with them. Never trust them. <laughs> he just was like, never trust white people. Yeah. He'd roll over in his grave now because I have way too many white friends. He was like, what is happening? <laughs> I told you. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, not all white people. <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes I do get off stage and I'm like, do people think I hate white people? And I do think some people do think I hate yeah, white people. Yeah. And I don't hate white people, but I do hate white, white listeners. People. We love and support and lift you up. Sure. Thank you for listening. Yeah, you're fine. I mean, you're, you're, you'll be fine. Like, you don't need my support, but you know, the world supports you. So this, this, is a, this is what I'm talking yes, about. This yes, is when I yes, do this. Yes. This is why people are like, does she hate white people? But I, I don't. I hate. I hate a system that mm. is built okay. to reward white people for being white and mm. to to disregard others. Mm. That's what I hate. Don't hate white people. But white people did, did build the system. Okay. So Preach on it. That's, that's it. That's it. But I do appreciate uh, more white people trying to figure out 
trying to be woke. Trying to be woke and understand more that maybe doesn't concern the group that they're in. Like, just understand what's going on. March, do research, ask questions. Like, I love that. Although I hate when they want me to be the research. They're like, teach me about this thing about race. And I'm just like, Google it. Yeah. You got the same Google I have. Yeah. I can't, like, come to your house and give you race 101. Yeah. It it shouldn't be... The black friend's responsibility or the the Muslim's friend friend mm-hmm. or the Hispanic friend to, like, yes. educate everyone on yeah. everything. Sashir Zameda, formerly of SNL, she has a stand-up special on Amazon Prime right now. It's called Pizza Mind. Yeah, Pizza Mind. She also hosts a live variety show called Sashir Zameda Party Time. You are listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. All this episode, we are sharing with you a few of my favorite moments with comedians here on the show. If you want to hear more of these chats, anything you hear on the show today, you can visit NPR.org or find these full chats in our show's podcast feed. A lot of these comedic moments are hilarious, but there are some, like this one clip with another SNL alum, that was not funny for him at the time it all went down. I'm talking about Taryn Killam. He was a cast member on SNL from 2010 through 2016. And when I talked to him, I asked Taryn about that now infamous episode of SNL, November 2015, when Donald Trump hosted. A lot of folks did not like that. Some people said that SNL was normalizing Trump and his rhetoric, particularly about immigrants and people of color. Were you there when Trump hosted? I certainly was. I'm going to give you seven minutes to talk about that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was it was rough. It was not really? enjoyable at the time. Really? And something that only grows more embarrassing and shameful, I think, as time goes on. You say it's shameful. Why? Yeah, because I don't necessarily... I don't think that the intention of having him on was ever politically based. I, I, I sincerely believe that. Mm. Um, but I don't think it was considered... The implications that it had then mm-hmm. and could have moving forward, mm-hmm. um, and I think, I think looking back, uh, it's something that that there's no part of me that appreciates or or you know even learns from or, or you know there's nothing oh. good I can take from that week because he's not he's not an enjoyable person to be around. There he wasn't during that week. No, he's, you know what I mean? He's just, he's from a different, he's from a different class. He's from a different way of life. He's, you know, he's just, he's just. But it's not just money, what I hear you saying, because there are other no. rich folks on SNL. What was it about 100%. him? 100%. What was it about him? Um, Completely out of touch. I, I think if I had to presume, because it's not like there weren't many in-depth conversations, just because there's no, there was never any common ground, right? Really? There was never, there was never any, you know what I mean? You couldn't be like, how was your day? And he'd be like, it was fine, you know, went for a walk. It was always like, my book is number one. It's very exciting. Yeah. Uh, everybody's talking about this rally. We, you know, and, and you're just... The good impression. Very kind. Yeah. Um, it, it, so it, it's just, I just am so angry. Did any <laughs> of the... Ca- so. And- Strangely at, enough, at him now, at him now, you know what I mean. At, at, at just, at just every move, every response, every tweet, every stance. 
strangely enough, I was covering the election for NPR the week yeah. that he hosted, and they sent me out there to cover all the protesters. Yes. So I camped out outside of 30 Rock for a good two days and talked to folks that were basically there either to wait for extra tickets or say how much <laughs> they hate this man. Yes. And what I kept thinking the whole time was that there were people of color and Latinos and low-income people who were just like, you don't understand how much pain this man has caused? Mm-hmm. And I don't, I can't speak to their experience, but I heard them and it felt like some folks at 30 Rock just did not listen to that. I, I agree. I fully agree. I We could hear the protests during our table read. Are you so serious? As we're reading, you know, 40 mediocre sketches trying to make you know, this funny, we just hear, you know, you know, no, it's tough. And, and, and look, say he hosts, say it plays out that I think I'll speak just for myself. Yeah. 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 Thought it would, which is he doesn't even get past the first primary. You know what I mean? Like he's going to be laughed Mm -hmm. off. Everybody's going to realize that this isn't a real thing. And it doesn't have the same weight or gravity, right? It it, it it definitely I'm I am embarrassed upon mm. reflection just because of how everyone was right. Did every it, every person outside of that building protesting was absolutely right. Did did anyone in the cast and the crew and the staff go to Lauren and say, dude, shut it down? I don't I don't know. Did you? I don't know. I did not. No. It, I did not? not. I didn't have that kind of relationship, right? I didn't. It seems have... like no one has that type of relation with Lauren. Yeah, I think he's got he's got his inner circle, and he and he manages that fairly tightly. Yeah. Um. I had I had gone to him about other things, significantly less important things, and rarely felt heard or considered. Really. Um. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's not the dynamic that's necessarily encouraged okay um yeah so so uh, you know i guess i guess the sort of lame excuse is you know we're it was our job and we're hired to put on a show with whoever the show determines you know is our is our host that week but it was not a good time did you have any one-on-one personal interaction with trump during that week um yeah yeah but it's all like all just like I'm sure it's a blur now. I remember specifics. I remember him being like, you know, he 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 wants to. He's constantly manipulating. He's managing. So you know, the the table really? read, and then every rehearsal is like, if the line is written, "Hi, I'm Donald Trump, and welcome to the show." It'd be like, you know, "I'm Donald Trump, welcome." You know, I think I sh- I think I should say it. Hey guys, I'm Donald. This is the show. Welcome to it. You know what I mean? Just more natural. You know, it's like all right. So, so like, I mean, what a lateral move. But what was he doing with that? Taking ownership. It's hit now his idea, right? Oh. And now he gets the credit. Now he's like, I made it so much better. Huh. Um, and it was you know like stepping to the side or stepping backwards. Uh, one like the most heartbreaking moment at the time. Uh, we're at the host dinner. Uh-huh. And he brings Melania, and he brings uh, Ivanka and Jared. We're all at at the host dinner, mm-hmm. and he says, "You know, Lauren, if I don't win this thing, I'm gonna be fine. We just bought this beautiful piece of property in Scotland. If I have to be president, I'm never gonna see that thing." Wow! And that that was his priority at that moment. You know what I mean? That that was that that was even a consideration. 
you know, made, made me sad. I don't want to stay on this forever, but like, how does it feel to know that SNL did that and now yeah. is like the face of the resistance? And you got Alec Baldwin and Kate McKinnon winning Emmys yeah, for uh, their work that is pretty anti-Trump. Well, listen, I mean, Kate is a genius. Of and course. Kate is one of the best Love people her. I know in the Carl world. Carl come on my show. Uh, okay, deal. I'll do it right <laughs> now. Um, Alec, I've only good things to say about, only good interactions, and, yeah. I, and I has been talented for a long time. Yeah. Um, there's certainly, it certainly feels like there's some hypocrisy here, there, you know? Really? With SNL? A little bit. And, and I guess I guess you could say like, oh, they're, they're writing wrongs. And I don't even think it's writing wrongs. I think the show tries to, um, and, and in particular, Lauren's outlook is play to both sides, play to the masses, play to whatever the popular opinion is a little bit there, you know, whatever the mass mm-hmm. consensus is. Mm-hmm. Um, but boy, boy, they could definitely like mine some comedy out, uh, out of uh, owning up to it, huh? That was Taryn Killam, a former cast member of SNL, talking about that time Donald Trump hosted the show. He had a movie coming out when he came by to talk with me. Uh, he wrote and directed it. It's called Killing Gunther. Much more of that and more SNL stories from him in that episode in our podcast feed. All right, time for a break. When we come back, Jimmy O. Yang from Silicon Valley and Darcy Carden from The Good Place. BRB. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. What has epic battles, biting wit, and holiday cheer? Maybe Thanksgiving, but also our pop culture happy hour celebration of the action classic Die Hard. Whether you're traveling or relaxing on the couch, it's a perfect welcome to the party, pal. Hear the conversation now on Pop Culture Happy Hour. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. Today, we're sharing a few of my favorite moments with comedians and comedic actors here on the show. Next up, two conversations on the challenges that come along with doing what you love. First up, Jimmy O. Yang. You know him from the HBO comedy Silicon Valley, where he plays Jin Yang. Jimmy swung by earlier this year to talk about his stand-up comedy career and a new book he wrote all about his life called How to American, An Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents. 
So Jimmy's a son of Chinese immigrants from Hong Kong. They moved with him to L.A. when he was a teenager. And when we talked, Buzz was just beginning to build about this new movie he's in that was going to be a big step forward in representation for Asian Americans on screen. You may have heard of it. It is called Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, but as he told me, blazing trails like that one is not always easy. So Crazy Rich Asians is based on a book written by Kevin Kwan mm-hmm. called Crazy Rich Asians. There's three books. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if this movie does well, maybe there will be a trilogy. Okay. But most importantly, it's the first movie in 25 years, first studio picture in 25 years since Joy Luck Club that features a full Asian cast. It's like y'all's Black Panther. Yeah, see, I, <laughs> I said that on Twitter. People got mad at me. Wait, they got... <laughs> I'm like, this is going to be our Black Panther. Obviously, jokingly, because yes. the two movies are nothing alike. It's it not was, a superhero yeah, film. Yeah. But for me, it's like, I hope, basically, with that statement, I'm saying, I hope it's going to be box office success yeah. and the cultural representation that yes. Black Panther is. And then black people tweeting me, they're mad. <laughs> they, they, they tell me, shut the F up. And they're telling me, like... Uh, why is it like whenever black people got a little bit of shine, y'all got to try to take it for yourself? I'm like, what, what, what are you talking about? Twitter is bad. Yeah, and then Asian people are like, yo, th- this movie, it could stand on its own. Like, we don't have to compare it like, and diminish both of the movie. And I'm like, oh, my what God. What does it feel to make a movie like this that is in many ways groundbreaking but is also entering this cultural moment right now where it yes. seems everyone is always mad about everything before it's even there. Uh, You're already experiencing that with this movie because some people are saying, oh, the portrayal of Asians is too anglicized or too heteronormative yeah. or they're all too pretty or whatever. Like, And you, you know who's critiquing the hardest or the critique that I get for my acting career? Asian people. Huh. You playing an immigrant on Silicon Valley, that makes me look bad. Blah, blah, blah. All this, like, you play this accented character. But I try to play everything very authentically. Even if it is an accented immigrant, uh, Jing Yang, that I play on Silicon Valley, yeah. I try to play it. It's just a version of myself when I came to this country when I was 13. And I'm trying to represent my immigrants, hmm. you know? So, well, you wrote in the book something. Um, you basically said, like, the issue is not the role. The issue is the baggage people feel about these accents themselves. Yeah, perception. Like, why do you feel so bad about the accent? And Sofia Vergara is sexy with her accent. Why am I nerdy and weird? Everyone likes British accents. Yeah, why is it when a white actor or even a black actor does a a, a British accent, it's considered art? It's considered, oh, he did well. Nobody ever gave Chadwick Boseman anything like, oh, you're doing an African accent, you misrepresent African people. But you know know what it is? What is it? And this movie is hopefully going to fix part of that. Uh It's there's not enough of us out there. Okay. So everything is being scrutinized. When you're one out of five Asian people on TV... All the pressure is on you, and you have to represent the, the whole other Asian four? spectrum. Who are the other I can't name. I don't <laughs> Wait, know. Wait, no. Okay, let's go. There, well, there's a few. John Cho is always on TV. He is always working. Yeah. yeah. My boy Ken Jeong is always in movies, TV. Yeah, he's something. He's he's, he's hilarious. Yeah. To me. Like comic as a comedian, yeah. I always yeah. think funny first. Like you know, it's who else? Wait, what, okay, the okay. list. Though. Who else? Who else? Uh, Constance Wu. Oh yeah, Randall Park. I mean that whole show. You know, True, Hassan Yang, all the kids. Yeah. So they are getting more and more now. Okay. But it's still. It's like the problem with Apu, that documentary. Yeah. You know, it's, it's this is about the Simpsons He character. was the most important. If you're the one, you carry all the weight. Exactly. So the problem, it's it's not enough representation. And hopefully, with Crazy Rich Asian, you get a whole spectrum of Asian. And I felt so good doing that movie because I, I can just be funny and act a fool. Yeah. Because... I'm not representing all Asians. I'm just representing one personality. But you know some people want you to represent all Asians. 
Well, they want to blame me for something, you know, okay. just because. Do you ever ain't. tweet back? Do you ever write back? I, just... I, I made the mistake of engaging about a week ago. <laughs> what did you do? And it was horrible. It was like one of the worst experiences I've ever happened? had in Twitter. Just everybody jumped on my case, you know, like saying this and that, calling me a sellout, calling me um whatever, Uncle Chan or something. Oh, Lord. But like, you know, usually whatever I read, it's very positive. Okay. Um, I had this girl come up to me after this book signing. It's like, we're very proud of you. You know, your success feel like our success. Okay. And I felt great about that. And then yeah. I have people like, you know, tweeting me great things or uh, Instagram message. This kid, he's like, I'm 15. I just came from China. I don't speak English very well. And like your book is the first book I've read in English without anybody's help. Really? And that's really inspiring. And I hope you keep doing that. So by and large, it's great. And I love all my Asian fans, and they're awesome. But it's this small population of the people haters. that it's like conspiracy theorists almost. Because really? then, like, you know, when they tweet you something nasty, you go on their profile to see who they are, right? It's never their real picture. Never, it's always some random Never their real picture, yeah. They, one, one guy tweeted me. Uh-huh. They said, because in a Huffington Post article, I'm like, I'm sorry I'm not the good-looking Chow Yun fat Asian, huh. you know, but character actors need roles too. But also, you know I mean? don't sell yourself short. Don't say that you're not good looking. Right, right. But I'm, I'm, I'm not good looking in the movie sense. Like, I'm sorry, I'm not like six two and super good looking. You're gonna tell me I can't act, right? <laughs> like, I shouldn't be representing you because I ain't this, 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 right? Uh-huh. So then people tweeting me, they're like, Hollywood chose you because they know you ain't good looking and they want to represent Asian people with your ugly face. Or oh my god, <laughs> because. And then, and then at the end, they're like, because everybody casting you is white, da-da-da. How do they know who's casting you? I know! And then they said, <laughs> at the end of that tweet, they said, F white supremacy. And I'm like, I'm not saying I don't exist out there, but how is that, how does that person? You getting your check. They, what is supremacist about you getting your check? They talking about white supremacist conspiracy putting me on TV <laughs> to misrepresent Asian people on purpose. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Yeah. No Ku Klux Klan member anointed me to be the ugly Asian person on TV, okay? You could go do it yourself. That was Jimmy O. Yang from HBO's Silicon Valley. His book is all about his immigrant story and his journey to stand-up comedy. It is called How to American, An Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents. To wrap things up today, from one of the smartest and most raved about comedies on TV right now, talking about NBC's The Good Place. I spoke recently with one of that show stars, Darcy Carden. She plays Janet on the show. You've also seen her in HBO's Barry. Uh, Darcy, on top of being on TV, she also frequently performs at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater here in Los Angeles. This is a place where some of the city's most talented improv comedians are discovered, and often, once they are discovered, you can still catch them performing there. So we initially met Darcy after one of her shows at UCB. And later back in the studio, we talked about how she stays connected to her comedic roots. You know, there was one moment that I think our listeners could definitely relate to right away. After the show, uh, me and my colleague Anjali accosted you backstage. We're like, we're going to talk for a little bit. And there was this moment where I kind of just have you describe the strangeness of the space backstage. (laughs) It was not glamorous. We have the tape of it, actually. Before I let you go, describe this room for our okay. listeners who okay. can't see. This is just outside of the stage right. in the green room. Steps away from the stage. You are in front of some garbage cans. I'm st- I'm standing on some sort of like puddle of garbage juice. Nice. Okay. 
Um, there are many, maybe like 10 kegs of beer next to us. I don't know what those are. I, this is <laughs> water like, heaters. Water heaters, yeah. We're right next to this bar and, and um, like servers keep coming in and out of the door to like throw garbage yeah. So you live a glamorous life. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, there's like a bathroom down those steps. Um, and there's and like a recycling some, bin. Yeah. It's, but like I said, it's nicer than the one in New York <laughs> that I came up in. And it just like okay. underscored for me, like I'll meet folks that are making it in the industry and you're like, oh, you're on TV. Your life must be glamorous right. all the time. Not so much. No, really not. And I mean, when you looked on, I'm trying to think of who played on Saturday Night when you were there, but like the majority of those people are on TV. Oh, yeah. I yeah. was like, I know you're from that show, exactly. from that show, from that show. Yeah. This is, but you know, and sure, like there are plenty of things that are glamorous about about that life, but like there are more things that are not. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. And I will also say, like, it's a garbage dump there, and <laughs> that speaks to how much we love it. Like, that, yeah. the people that have come up at UCB that continue to go back to do these shows week after week, it's like it is our home mm-hmm. and we love it. Mm-hmm. And like, bring it, bring on the garbage juice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I also found myself saying, well, gosh, if I was in Darcy's spot and I had a clutch role on a successful network sitcom. Thanks, dude. I'd be like, I ain't never doing the garbage <laughs> juice again. I'm out of here. Yeah. I'm guessing you don't have to do used to be anymore. Well, what makes you want like, to keep like have to as far as like career stuff? Yeah. You know, it's like a I don't I don't really The weird thing about UCB is like it never really was a have to because mm. I'm sure this is public knowledge but like we don't get paid for it not a not a dime yeah. so it's never been a have to as far as like it's i not need paying to your bills. yeah it's so much about like loving it and huh. and to be honest when i don't do it i find myself like going a little cuckoo like there, really? when i moved when my husband and i moved from new york to la where in new york were you i we lived in brooklyn heights but performed at UCB and Chelsea. Gotcha, gotcha. You know, yeah. like many nights a week, you know, yeah. anywhere from one to truly like five you said shows we, a week. your husband too. My husband, um, I say we a lot. My husband is not, he's a producer, but okay. he, we were we were in that in that, that world, okay. in that life, yeah, yeah. very much, yeah. very like deeply. Yeah. And then moving to LA where, you know, there's a UCB here, but it, it, <clears throat> it takes a minute to like, you don't automatically just get to do the same shows and, oh, really? you know, you have to like... You had to like re-audition? Yeah, a okay. little... Yeah, you do have to re-audition, huh. which was... Insulting? Uh, it was probably like, I don't know, humbling or good, yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. always good to like mix it up. But yeah, it definitely kind of rocked me, you know, going from doing many shows a week to coming to LA and, and doing a show once in a while. Mm-hmm. The, that first, I don't know, six months was... I found myself like needing a creative outlet. Really? Weird things. Like I would be, <laughs> I'd be like in the car, you know, we sing to the radio, but I would be like ad libbing to the radio or I would like be writing poetry in my uh-huh. head. I just, I was like, what am I doing? You and had then to get I it realized out. like yeah. I have all this pent up weird creative energy that I usually can just leave Put on, on the stage. stage. So have you found a method that you reliably use now to get those juices out or you just bounce around with stuff? Well, I think like, okay, so when I am shooting The Good Place, mm-hmm. it is, or Barry. What's that about? This is Bill Hader's new show. Oh, I heard I heard him on, he was on yeah. KPCC yesterday. Yes, he was. Yeah, on The Frame. We had the premiere last night, which is why I look like this. You look which great. Which is a little rough. Oh, but listen, we're on, you look great. But we're on the air, so you yeah. can't see me. Um, but anyway, so like when I'm shooting those shows... It is definitely harder to get the UCB shows in. Yeah. But 
I almost think of it as like working out or something. Like, like okay. my brain yeah. will need get to run. soft. You yeah, know? totally. Yeah. It's like I need it. Got to keep those muscles yeah. tight. Yeah. Did your experience doing those shows change once you like got big? Oh, I am so big. <laughs> you are. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, you know, it. Okay, so it's a weird thing because on one hand, no, not mm-hmm. at all, mm-hmm. and then on the other hand. It's a pressure that, like, I think I probably am putting on myself. You can, like, there's something that happens when a person sees a person on TV. It's like, oh, yeah. whether they watch the show, whether they even yes. like the person, yes. it's just this little whatever. They become separate and apart. Right. It's like this thing, like, I reckon, it's yes. just this thing. Yes. And we've all seen it and we've all done mm-hmm. it and whatever. I've done it. So I have noticed that, like, when I come out on stage, there's, like, a little bit more of a vocal than I had heard ah, when I was okay. not. Okay. So you can kind of just feel that recognition, which is not a big deal, but in my, I can a little bit get in my head about like... Does it put more pressure yeah, on you? Yeah, like you better deliver, honey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like that's only going to result in getting in your head. I mean, and the thing about improv is truly like as little as you can put pressure on yourself and be in your head, yeah. the better. Yeah. And also like it's it seems as like from what I've seen when I yeah. watch these shows... No one's actually trying to be the star. They're yes. just trying to keep it moving. Oof. And when you are, when one is trying to be the star, which, like, I can't even remember the last time I was in a show like that because, to be honest, you don't, like, get very far at UCB if that's the vibe. Yeah. It is rough. And it it almost does the opposite. Huh. Like, you can feel the audience kind of go, like, mm, yeah. they're stepping out this again. Yeah. yeah. Like, they're tagging that person out again. Yeah. You know, I think I mentioned this to you backstage. Like, the thing that I love about improv is how much of an ensemble it is and Mm -hmm. how much we are trying to like build each other up Mm -hmm. and it's not about me me saying the funniest thing it's about me like setting you up to say the funniest thing or whatever you know i always say like you make me look like a genius and i promise i'll make you look like a genius i think that's like i love that That was Darcy Carden. You can see her right now on NBC's The Good Place, also on HBO's Barry. Uh, This episode, we heard a few of my favorite moments on the show from so many great comedians. And because I'm in the comedic spirit, I am now going to share with you a joke of my own. Actually, a joke from our listener. I wanted to share somewhere in this episode the worst knock-knock joke I could think of. I think I found it. Brent, help me out. He's on the phone. Brent, you ready? Ready. Okay. Knock-knock. Who's there? Two. To who? To whom? <laughs> that joke came to us from listener Carla Jimenez. Thanks, Carla. All right, with that, we're going to let you go. Everything you've heard today is in our show's podcast feed and at npr.org. Hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Until next week, thanks for listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. 
I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little breaks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.